0: If you're visiting today, welcome. Uh, We appreciate having visitors here. We hope that you enjoy Cornerstone if you're visiting. If you have any questions, you can ask anybody. And if they don't know, I'm sure they'll point you to somebody who will know the answers. But thank you so much for being here today. I'm going to be speaking today, as I said, from Ezekiel. If you're taking notes, the title of the sermon is, What in the World Am I Doing? And besides what God's Word has to say... That could possibly be the most profound thing that that you hear from me today. I'm pretty happy with coming up with that title because it has a double meaning. Not just like, you know, you say to somebody, what in the world are you doing? It does have that meaning, but it's also what in the world am I doing? I want to speak today about what we as believers are to be doing. Two specific areas. One, what are we supposed to be doing to the believer who is in sin? And what are we supposed to be doing with the unbeliever? Those two specific areas. When Pastor Paul told me about a month or so ago, maybe a little over a month ago, that uh, he wanted me to speak today, the first thing I thought was, this is awesome because I was going to come in here, and I was serious. I mean, it wasn't just a thought. I was planning on it. I told Delilah. She was cringing a little bit. But I was going to come in here, and I was going to be like, church is canceled. You know, let's go. We're all getting in our cars and we're going to go to Walmart or we're going to go somewhere where there's a lot of people and we're going to do church. We're not going to come to church, we're going to go do church. We're going to do what we're supposed to do. That was literally my intention. And then I thought, well, there's visitors and elderly people, no offense to the elderly people, elderly people, then there's people who might have a problem with that, you know. Uh and so that got thrown on the wayside. Uh, Not that I don't do that, or we shouldn't do that, or that shouldn't be our focus, but I came up with this sermon, and it's based on my devotions for the month of June. Last month, I went through the book of Ezekiel and was just blown away by a couple of chapters, and in particular, chapter 3 that we're going to look at today. So, two distinct things, the unbeliever and the believer who is in sin. Uh, I'm going to start in verses 4 and 5, and then I'm going to jump down to verses 17 through 21. So, Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language, but to the house of Israel. And if you want to go to 17 through 21... Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, hear a word from my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that same wicked man is going to die in his sin, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he still doesn't turn from his wickedness nor from his wicked way, He's still going to die, but you have delivered your soul. Again, when a righteous man turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die, because you did not give him warning. He shall die in his sin, and his righteousness, which he has done, shall not be remembered. But his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous should not sin, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he took warning also you will have delivered your soul. I'm going to address these in the opposite order that Ezekiel does. I'm going to go with the believer in sin first and then the unbeliever. I realize that this dispensation, there weren't believers yet, but we're talking about righteous and unrighteous, believer, unbeliever. That's how I'm going to address it. So the first group that needs warning is the believer in sin. This is a touchy subject. This is a real touchy subject for people. I can think of, while I'm putting this together and even standing here right now, I can think of a few faces in my mind that I know for a fact, not here, that I know for a fact have a problem with this. Talking to somebody, approaching another believer about something that they're in sin on, or church discipline. There are people that have a real issue with this. We shouldn't do that. That's wrong. I also want to say before I really get into this that (laughs) <laughs> There's nobody in my head that I'm thinking of while I'm saying all this. This was just what the Lord laid on my heart. So, I don't. If you guys are feeling convicted while I'm talking, then that's the Holy Spirit. You know, I have nobody's face in my mind that I'm thinking. You know, somebody needs to clean their act up. But um, the Bible tells us in, in Matthew, go to your brother one on one. If you have a problem, if you have an issue with your brother, you go to him one on one if, you know, he doesn't listen to what you have to say, then you go get two or three, you go back to your brother, you talk to him, this is the process that the Bible lays out for us in that particular passage. I had a Bible school professor who told me, as you can imagine, at Bible school, a lot of things happen in groups, so if somebody acted like an idiot in a group, then maybe a couple of people would approach the guy or girl who did something wrong and say something to them, and as you can imagine, uh, And I have this attitude a lot of times too. If somebody says something to me like, "Uh -uh, what are you talking about? You know, I just get defensive right away. And he says, the Bible school professor says, it shouldn't be the attitude. We shouldn't be pointing out what the person did wrong. Well, you came to me with two at first and you're only supposed to come with one person. You know, we start picking out what they did wrong biblically, you know. We shouldn't be doing that. We should be, is there any truth to what this person is saying? Are they saying anything that has merit to it? Is there anything true about what they're saying? That should be our attitude. 1 John and other places in the Bible, but 1 John talks about darkness having nothing to do with light. You can't have light and darkness all at the same time. You can't be completely black with light in the room. You can't be. There's nothing to do with it. We just got done, well, a little while ago, got done with the book of James. Pastor Paul went through James James 4, four adulteresses and adulterers, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You cannot be a friend with the world and be a friend with God. You can't play, I'm going to church on Sunday and the rest of the week I'm doing what I like to do. The world way, you can't do that. James 5.19 and 20, the last two verses of the book of James say... Brother, and if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death to cover a multitude of sins. I have accountability partners. I have two accountability partners in my life that I have asked to be accountability partners that I know are my accountability partners. And on the other end, I've had two men ask me to be their accountability partners. You don't have to be asked to be an accountability partner, though. Are you a believer? Am I a believer? Then the Word of God makes me your accountability partner, and you are my accountability partner. Are we believers? We need to be taking this seriously, very, very seriously. We've developed an attitude of that that's between them and God. Well, that's between them and God. And you know what? Eh, I don't really want to say something to somebody, so that's between them and God. That's true. It is between them and God. But it's also between other believers and that person. Because we are brothers and sisters. We are family. And we need to hold each other accountable for our actions. It was probably about a month ago, I might possibly say this every time I speak here, but I can't stand Facebook. But it was probably about a month ago that Delilah found this story on Facebook. It was a deacon's wife, and the deacon's wife I don't even know where she was from, but she wrote this story, and it was a very good story, and her heart's attitude was awesome, but she was approached in her church by an older lady about what she was wearing. Top apparently was too short, and the skirt was too high. My understanding was when she went to the daycare to pick her kids up, and she bent over to pick her kids up, you could have possibly seen underwear, and her shirt was hanging down, deacon's wife. So this older lady approaches her and rips her up pretty good, I guess, tells her, you know, what you're wearing is inappropriate. The responses that Delilah got on that from believing women sickened me. This attitude of entitlement, that's between them and their husbands and God. And don't talk to me about stuff like that. She actually had one Christian woman, a Christian woman told Delilah in private, not on Facebook, told her, I should be able to stand on the table in church naked and dance And people shouldn't have a problem with that if their heart's right with God. Like, keep it between them and themselves. I'm not going to go too deeply into this, but are you kidding me? This is Christians' attitudes. I have struggled, as I've told you before, with pornography. Pornography for men is like candy to a kid. It is going to be a struggle of mine, I'm sure, until the day I die. Hallelujah. Since about six years ago, I haven't looked at it again, but it's not like it's not a struggle. And this is her attitude? If there's something that needs to be said, it needs to be said. And we need to stop backpedaling and say it. Now, I have a problem with saying things a little bit too bluntly, not so gentle. I would probably be the poster child of what my professor at Bible school said, the guy who doesn't do it right, you know, but maybe there's truth to what I say because I'm not very gentle. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8, says, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly <clears throat> excuse me, are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The context of this verse is sexual immorality in the church, but certainly it doesn't just only apply to sexual immorality. A little leaven leavens a whole lump. We've had a really hot summer. We're breaking records all over the place. Very dry too. Very hot summer. So imagine, like I'm on the roof a lot. Barn roofs, house roofs, shingling. I'm on the roof a lot. Last week, I literally felt like I was going to pass out about twice being on a barn roof that was like 120 degrees with the sun baking on the shingles while we're putting steel on the roof. A nice refreshing glass of water would have been awesome. So let's put ourselves in that situation. You're outside, you're sweating profusely. Here's a nice refreshing glass of water. And I take the little eye droplet, whoop, whoop, two drops of cyanide. Anybody want it? Come on, it's hot out. You're sweating. You're thirsty. Don't you want this? That's like 99.8% water and only 0.2% of cyanide. What's the problem? Nobody wants this refreshing glass of water? No, we don't want it. It's corrupted. That should be our attitude with sin in the church. Christ's bride. And we let sin go on in there? without saying anything because, oh, that's awkward. Oh, that might be a close friend of mine and I want to keep a close friend. So we don't say anything? If there's cancer in the church, you take the means necessary to correct or eradicate. I've been praying for the grace. Rex lost his brother to cancer. When the human body gets cancer, what are our steps? Get it out at all costs. Radiation, chemo, whatever it takes, get it out. That should be our attitude with cancer in the church. And lovingly and gently do it. But we need to get it out. We need to stop backpedaling. Shouldn't be a mundane task either. This shouldn't be something that I, I realize it's hard to say. Some of the hardest things that I've ever said have been to friends. I don't know if it's the younger generation I say younger like I'm really old. I'm 37, 36, whatever I am now. When we were at Bible school, I was really old because I'm there with 18 to 21-year-olds, you know. But I don't know if it's that group of people, the 18 to 21s, that think it's okay to take God's name in vain or what. But like even at Bible school, we heard, oh my, G-O-D, like all the time. And it's like... And one of my closest and dearest friends was one of these guys that said that every now and then. And finally, we were lifting weights one morning, and I finally said to him, Dude... (coughs) And I didn't do it gently again dude what are you doing and he looks at me like he has no idea he thought he was like lifting wrong or something I don't know and I said you are taking the Lord's name in vain you are using the Lord's name as a byword that means without reverence just another flippant word who cares stop it if you want to do it don't do it around me please it drives me insane that was one of the hardest things I had to do because he was so, and he still is. The thing is about James that I just read, you turn a brother from the error of his way, you've saved a soul and delivered him from a multitude of sins. Man, that solidified our relationship. That's why this shouldn't be a mundane task. You know how much better the church is going to be for us coming alongside each other and saying, hey, what you're doing does not align with God's word. Let's correct it. It's going to build us up. It's going to be a very good thing. That's a little bit of a soapbox for me. We're going to switch gears to the unbeliever. So, if you're taking notes, we're on to the unbeliever now. The unbeliever is obvious enough, and the reason why I switched them from Ezekiel talking about the unbeliever first, then the believer, the reason why I switched them is because, unless I did something really crazy that you remembered, usually the last thing that, you, or the only thing you're going to remember is the last thing that I talked about. So I wanted to talk about witnessing to the unbeliever last. We're commissioned to talk to the unbeliever. It's obvious enough the unbeliever needs warning. The unbeliever has got a warning. The Bible says creation testifies to God's eternal power and Godhead. That's in Romans 1.20, I believe. It says at the end of that verse, they're without excuse. Just because of creation alone, the unbeliever is without excuse. They have been warned, but we need to remind them of this warning. They are on a set of railroad tracks, and there's a train coming for them, and they don't know it. They need a warning. Hello, what are you doing? I read a book last month, in the month of June as well, called uh, Erasing Hell. It's by Francis Chan. I highly recommend it. He did this little demonstration and I want to do it today. It's very brief and, and it's not embarrassing. So I want everybody to close their eyes right now. <clears throat> everybody, close your eyes and think about right now a close friend or family member or somebody who is near and dear to you that is an unbeliever. <clears throat> you've had good times with this person, you've shared dinners. Whatever. Your families get together. This is just somebody who is really close to you, near and dear to you, but it's an unbeliever. I want you to think about this person standing before the judgment seat of Christ. They've died. They're standing before the judgment seat of Christ, and it's going to be the last peaceful breaths that they take forever. When they hear the words, Depart from me, worker of iniquity, I never knew you. I don't know who you're thinking about. That doesn't matter. I've got a few people in mind. Mostly, you can open your eyes. Mostly, the guys that I work with, to be honest with you. The guys that I work with. I love the guys that I work with. The most perverted, foul mouthed, raunchiest set of guys that I've ever had the privilege of witnessing to. I love those guys. And the majority of them are on their way to hell. And not only them, but their wives. And not only them and their wives, but their kids. So what am I doing? What in the world am I doing? Sometimes I just pray, you know, God, I don't know what to say. I actually say that about every day. God, I don't know what to say. You know, when I open my mouth to something that they've said, some biblical truth that I try to inject, or if they actually ask something, and, you know, trying to raise support to get overseas to be a a missionary uh, overseas... In a foreign country, that obviously has sparked curiosity, and they've asked questions, so I'm looking for any opportunity to inject some biblical truth, and I often wonder, is this just blah, blah, blah to them, you know? I don't know. But these people that you were just thinking about that are in our minds, that are unbelievers, are we doing enough? Are we saying enough? I have a video that I want you to watch. Um... It's Penn Gillette. You've probably heard of Penn and Teller. I think, I'm not 100% sure what they are, like magician comedians, comedic magicians, something like that. But this is Penn Gillette. He's the big guy with long hair. He's a self-proclaimed atheist. I want you to hear this video. I want you to listen to what he has to say. Can somebody get those lights, please? Kurt? So... A self-proclaimed atheist, a self-proclaimed atheist who's bound for the lake of fire reminded me better than I've probably ever heard with the exception of God's word telling me that I often choose to ignore. A self-proclaimed atheist told you better than I ever could these words. I typed out a little bit of his quote. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize, to not witness to them? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them about it? I mean, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, if that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this, referring to eternal life, is more important than that. Wow. An atheist. We might not be called to overseas missions, called to overseas missions but please don't mistake that for not being sent anywhere at all God did not say to Ezekiel well I'm not sending you to a foreign language so I guess you can just go to church on Sunday and that ought to do it he didn't tell Ezekiel that Back to verses four and five. Here's what he said. Then he said to me, "Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. You are not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language, but to the house of Israel." I'm going to change a couple of words and read that again. I am not going to be a heretic when I do this because I am not changing the meaning of the of the verse. I'm just changing the words. We learned this in Missouri. It was very uh, educational when we were in Missouri. There are some tribes in the world that don't have the word love in their language. So how do you say God loves you? For, you know, How do you explain that to somebody? So you change the words, but you do not change the meaning. I'm going to do that for you right now. Then he said to me, Joel, go to the United States of America and speak my words to them. I am not sending you to a people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language, but to the United States of America. I'm not in Africa right now. I'm in the United States right now. You're in the United States right now. There are people flowing into this country. I often wonder, and we'll probably never be able to prove, but I often wonder if the Lord God says, they're not doing it. They're not going overseas with overseas missions, like I've stated in the, in the book that I want them to do, so I'm going to bring them to you. There's a great opportunity in the United States to reach countless unreached people groups. My conclusion is this. It's a quote, and that's it. It's a quote by Spurgeon. And he said this to believers. You're either a missionary or an imposter. Which one am I? Let's pray. God, thank you so much again for this time that you've given me. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of your word. Lord God, I especially thank you for loving us. I especially thank you for sending your son to die for us in spite of who we are and the things that we do, Lord. You love us. You have created us in your image. We are image bearers of God. God, soften our hearts. Let us realize. Let us ponder. Let us think about, even for a couple of seconds, the eternal destiny of the unbeliever and try to put ourselves in his position that he is going to suffer forever and ever and ever and ever in the lake of fire with absolutely no end because I find it socially awkward to open my mouth. Forgive me. God, again, bless the rest of this day, and I also just ask for Pastor Paul and his family again, Lord, just be with them. In Jesus' name, amen.